You're listening to Lies and Half-Truths, tales written and performed by A.P. Weber. Last time we introduced you to Woodrow, a boy with perhaps an unfair reputation for arson and patricide. He's been traveling on a remarkable airship with his great cat, Tamberline, a golem named Hartford, and a mysterious celestial being known only as Angel. When Tamberline is thrown overboard during a scuffle with a seagull, Woodrow decides to explore a nearby island in search of her. And now, Lies and Half-Truths presents The Moon Shadow, First book of the adventures of Woodrow the Wicked. Part 1 Cephalopod Sign Chapter 2 Tamberline washed ashore in a heap of tangled fur, coughing seawater into the beach. The roaring of the waves behind her made her feel anxious, and the sand beneath her paws itched. The salty air carried the smell of decaying leaves to her. Her eyes watered, blurring her vision as they searched inland. She made out the jagged green shape of a tree line on the far side of the sand and began to paw her way, blinking and shaking toward it. Her eyes had cleared by the time she felt the twigs and moist earth of the jungle floor. Her coat itched. She ran her tongue down the length of her back and began working her way down her left side. When she turned her neck to do the same on her right, something caught her eye. Her ears turned back, and her spine arched, and her breath escaped in a vitriolic hiss. Woodrow rubbed the back of his neck. His father used to do the same thing when he was working out a problem. As a young boy, Woodrow would mimic the gesture from below his father's workbench, watching the man lean over a set of schematics, or an alchemist's vial, or some tome of physics. The boy would practice rubbing the back of his neck while reading his own books or building castles in the mud. But it wasn't until he took charge of the moon shadow that he realized he was doing the gesture unconsciously. He had followed Tamberline's tracks to a pile of sand in the woods. From there, it looked like she had climbed a tree, fallen from a broken branch, climbed another tree, leapt to a third, tore the vines off the trunk of that tree, rolled around in the underbrush, and then disappeared into the thicket. She was definitely here, said the boy. That's a relief. Hartford stood at nearly twice Woodrow's height, but did not share his confidence. His glowing yellow eyes darted here and there. His neck squeaked oillessly. He held his hands together, clicking the metal tips of his fingers against each other in a mechanical rhythm. Don't be so nervous, said the boy, patting the golem on the chest. She's fine. We just need to find her. Now here's the plan. I search from the ground. You search from the air. 
I'll meet you on the other side of the island. At this, Hartford's fingers accelerated their tapping. What? I'm fine down here. Or are you just nervous about piloting the moon shadow? You're getting better at it. Still a bit slow and clumsy. But you'll do fine on your own. The golem's fingers were zipping along like pistons, his chin squeaking and twitching. Relax. Just get back to the ship and start looking. I'll see you on the other side. The boy knew that if he didn't walk away, Hartford would just go on making his silent protest. So he turned and headed into the thicket. A moment later, he heard the golem's squeaking joints and heavy footfalls trailing off in the opposite direction. There wasn't much to go on after the bedlam Tamberline had left near the sand pile. But there seemed to be an occasional scuffle here and there that the boy took for her handiwork. The one mistake my father ever made was thinking he could tame a great cat, he thought. On the day his father brought Tamberline home after one of his journeys abroad, he told Woodrow of ancient Nephilim who had kept great cats as pets and how no one since had dared to do so. She was a mere kitten then, eyes still closed. She needed to be fed milk from a bottle. Now she's a monster. Woodrow allowed himself a wry smile. My monster. The jungle thrummed with the buzz of insects and the calls of exotic birds. He swatted at things tickling his neck and brushed aside hanging greenery as he made his way through the thicket. A sudden prick at the back of his right thigh hardly registered with him until numbness began to radiate from the spot throughout his entire leg. He leaned against a tree trunk and poked at the muscles with his forefinger. It felt like touching a stranger. What's happening? he said aloud. Poison came a cracking voice in reply. An old man emerged from the leafy foliage, crowned in camouflage, hunching and snarling toothlessly. He wore canvas trousers, but no shirt. His chest looked like a leather bag pulled tight against a human skeleton. Woodrow half expected to see a zipper running up his spine. The man held a hollow bamboo shaft. Who are you? Woodrow demanded. I'm asking the questions, Sonny, cackled the old leather bag man. He held one end of the bamboo to his lips. It was a poison dart. Just one crippled your leg. You'll be fine after an hour or so, but this next one is pointed at your throat. Now start talking. Woodrow swallowed. I said start talking, the old man hissed. What do you want me to say? Leatherbag narrowed his eyes. Smart, Alec, huh? You're coming with me. I can't walk. Get a stick. Use it as a cane. And don't try anything clever, smart Alec. I got plenty more darts. They walked for more than an hour. Leatherbag behind, Woodrow leading the way, hobbling with his improvised cane. Leatherbag directed the boy to a rough path and told him to follow it. By the time they came to the end of the path, Woodrow's leg had regained feeling. He shook it out and found it no worse for wear. They now stood before a wide crescent of sand. 
the horns of which stretched out into the sea and angled toward each other. A bay, thought the boy, or a giant lagoon. In either case, this is as good a place as any to meet up with Hartford. He reached for the goggles sitting on his brow, only to feel the sting of leather bag's bamboo as it smacked against the back of his hand. I told you not to try anything smart, the old man snarled. That was a warning. Woodrow held his wrist and shook out the pain in his hand. That hurt. Leatherbag grinned an evil, near-toothless grin. Good. In the center of the bay, a small ship had weighed anchor and sat smoking from its twin exhaust stacks. Woodrow could hear the hum of the ship's engine from where he stood on the far side of the beach. Beyond the points of the bay's crescent, in the deeper seawater, lay a wide barge piled with dull metal objects, broken ship masts, and more than one rubber wheel. You're a salvager? Leatherbag grunted. Kaborgang, head to that rowboat. He gestured with the bamboo toward a boat grounded in the sand. You row, the old man sat at the boat's tiller. Take us out. Remember, one of these darts to your neck and you'll be paralyzed. That'll make it pretty hard for you to swim when I push you overboard. So just do what you're told and don't try anything. Woodrow sighed. He used an oar to push off into the calm water. The water was clear and the boy could see down to the sandy floor. One look and he knew why the salvager was here. The floor of the lagoon was littered with sunken iron ships trailing away from the shore into the open sea. Long, hollow cylinders protruded everywhere from the submerged vessels. Cannons. These are antique warships, said Woodrow in breathless wonder. There was a battle here. Leatherbag raised his eyebrows. Well, look at the brain on you. Keep your mouth shut and row. We're almost there. Woodrow peered over his own shoulder to see the salvage ship, now quite near, and something he had not expected. A girl, about his own age, standing on the ship's deck. She wore her hair pulled back in bushels of tight black curls. A hood and a cowl lay about her otherwise bare neck and shoulders, her skin a bronze as dark as the deep sea. She set her eyes upon him with cool indifference, then turned and disappeared from the deck. Who was that? The old man gave him a crooked smile. Don't concern yourself with her, lover boy. I didn't say anything about being in love with her. I just... Oh, why am I talking to you? The old man laughed a misery-savoring laugh. Row, boy! I am ro Oh, forget it. When they arrived at the ship, the plump face of an old woman with thin gray strings for hair peered out at them from the deck. What's this? Her voice was lower than the old man's and came out rough as though her thick throat were filled with gravel. Found him hunting. I wasn't hunting, Woodrow protested. Shut up the old couple spat out in unison. 
I found this little sneak while I was hunting. He came on an airship, had a big night or something with him. The old woman made a sound like she was gargling the rocks in her throat. That's not good, she said. Wait till you hear about the ship. The old woman tossed out a rope. What about it? Leatherbag secured the rowboat to a ladder. No balloon, just hangs in the sky like it's on ropes from the broken moon itself. The old man poked at Woodrow. Climb. The deck of the ship was slick with oil and cluttered with small bits of engine, pieces of armor, broken firearms, and metal piping. All of it rusted and piled here and there without any apparent order. Don't get any smart ideas about making off with our salvage, the gravel-throated woman said. Woodrow took an exaggerated look at the sky. I wouldn't dream of it. He's being smart, said Leatherbag. That's the thing about kids. They think they're so smart. Makes me glad I'm barren, said Gravelthroat. What about that girl I saw? Woodrow asked. She ain't ours, said Gravelthroat, as if it had been an accusation. Pretty girl like that? I'm not surprised. He's being smart again. I ought to give him another smack for my rod. At that moment, the girl came out of the ship's cabin with a knife in one hand and an apple in the other. The old couple watched as she brushed past, sat on the railing across from them, and began carving the skin from the fruit. No one spoke. Hello, Woodrow said at last. Hi, said the girl, without looking up from her work. The apple peel came off in one large strand, hanging in loops, all the way down to the greasy wood of the deck. She let the peel fall and began cutting the apple into wedges. She looked up and saw everyone watching her. Oh, don't let me interrupt. Please continue. Is there um, something you need, little miss? Said the old woman, trying hard to raise her voice an octave. No, nothing. But please continue what you were doing. What is it you're doing exactly? We, we are interrogating this intruder. Leatherbag answered. We have a registered claim on this salvage site, and he's intruding on it, put in Gravelthroat. I understand. So whatever you do, the Privateer's Guild will support you, said the girl. The old couple exchanged looks. All right, then. The woman cleared some gravel from her throat and turned to Woodrow. Talk, kid. I am curious, however, interrupted the girl. If you plan on doing any actual salvaging today? We've been here for almost two weeks, and all you've done is dump barrels in the bay. We told you, that damnable giant Seth, wailed Leatherbag with sudden impatience. The girl cored a wedge of apple. Can't you work around it? The old man opened his mouth and formed several round words without making a sound. Wait. There's a giant cephalopod down there, said Woodrow, dashing to look over the side of the deck. Must be a hermit cephalopod. Let me handle this, said the old woman. That monster is very dangerous, young lady. No, it's not, Woodrow interrupted. Not if you know how to talk to him. The three strangers turned to look at Woodrow. 
I mean, he began again. They are dangerous. Very dangerous, if you make them mad. So, said the girl, if you were to drop depth charges near the creature, for example? She glared at the old couple. It has to go, Leatherbag insisted. It's taken up residence inside a firebrand battlecruiser, the most valuable vessel down there, and it's using it as a shell. Why are we even arguing about this? The old woman barked, abandoning any effort to sweeten her rough voice. This is our ship and our claim. You're just here to observe. The girl ate a piece of apple. Well, I certainly haven't observed anything yet, she said, chewing. I'd hate to think this experience was a waste of my time. Oh, don't you worry about that, missy. There will be plenty of selvaging as soon as we do away with that monster. After we deal with this interloper. He's no one. Look at him, said the girl with a dismissive shrug. He came on an airship, Leatherbag said. My father owns three fleets of airships. Not like this one. Fine. Do what you want with him, but do it quickly. I want to see some selvaging sometime this decade, perhaps before my drift is over. The old woman's cheeks puffed out, red. We don't take orders from you. I don't care who your father is or what tattoo you have. This here is our ship. She jabbed a finger at the deck. As you say, the girl shrugged. Do what you want. I'll wait. I just hope the wait turns out to be worth my time. With that, the girl returned to the cabin and closed the door behind her. The old couple exchanged looks, their faces masks of hate even uglier than before. Let's take him to the altar, said Gravelthroat. Leatherbag grabbed Woodrow by the collar. Come on, boy. Woodrow shrugged out of his hold, but went along. I can help you with your cephalopod problem. Sure you can. Neil here. Woodrow was standing before a small statue at the bow of the ship. The figure had wings and fish scales and spewed water from its mouth. At the statue's feet lay dried seaweed, a broken pot with barnacles on it, gold coins green from the sea, and a pile of tarnished silver chains. Iplio, the god of the southern trade winds, said Woodrow. You guys are superstitious. Hold out your hand, Leatherbag growled. Woodrow offered it to him with a scowl. The old man took hold of Woodrow's wrist. Before the boy could react, a dagger slid across his palm. Ow! Why'd you do that? Offering to the god. In my estimation, gods require blood offerings are more trouble than they're worth. The woman spoke up, her voice heavy with moral authority. Hiplio does not require blood. Hiplio requires a tithe of what we draw from the sea, what he has given us. You got off easy with a few drops of blood. Iplio didn't give me to you. I'm not Iplio's to give. The old sea hag and her husband ignored him. Place your hand on the statue. 
Woodrow breathed deep and rolled his eyes. Fine. Now, swear by the southern trade winds to tell the truth. What do you want to know? Just ask. Who sent you? Woodrow sighed. You caught me. I'm a spy. We're here to steal all your sea junk. We knew it, said Leatherbag. Who sent you? The Ripple Bottoms? Harry Squeller? I sent me. I'm the captain of my ship. You can't be more than fifteen. That's because I'm not. You expect us to believe a crew takes orders from a kid? I don't care what you believe. I just want to find my cat and get off this island. The couple studied the boy for several seconds. Where did you get a ship like that? said Gravelthroat, squinting one eye at him. I stole it. The couple exchanged looks. That part, I believe, said the old woman. I heard an interesting story before leaving port not long ago. It's a long way from the Dewey Archipelago, young man. Woodrow didn't meet her eyes. He spat on the deck. There's another side to that story, he said. I imagine there is, but probably not one that pays a bounty. How about a ransom? Gravel throat stroked one of her several chins. Leather bag ground his gums. Your crew will pay it? Woodrow gave a sharp laugh. My crew? Not a chance. I'll pay the ransom myself. The old couple's face went blank. What? Woodrow said. You can't pay your round ransom. Why not? No one else will. Then we'll collect the bounty, Gravelthroat said with finality. No, argued Woodrow. That's a stupid idea. The bounty isn't for me. It's for the ship. My crew aren't going to give up the ship, and they aren't going to pay a ransom. But I will. The couple's blank expressions returned. You don't have any money. Did he have any money when you captured him? I didn't check, mumbled Leatherbag. You didn't? Woodrow interrupted the couple's budding spat. I'm not offering you money. I'm offering to solve your problem. We can handle that, girl. Girl, what? I'm talking about the cephalopod. That squid monster? It's more like an octopus, actually. But yes, the squid monster, the thing using that battle cruiser you want to salvage as a shell. You shouldn't eavesdrop, boy. You guys were talking right in front of me. That's no excuse. Do you want my help or not? What could you possibly do to help? Glad you asked. The giant cephalopod is an extremely intelligent creature. The natives of the southern islands called them Nanamiho. Some even worship them as gods. Savages do all kinds of stupid things, Gravelthroat snarled. Stupid? Did you know those savages learned how to talk to the Nanamiho? Of course you didn't. Why would you care that you could talk to someone when you could just blow them up instead? That won't work, by the way. Oh, it will work. You said he's using a firebrand battlecruiser as a shell. You'll have to blow it up to get to him, and I doubt you have enough blasting powder to do that. Even if you do, 
you've just blown up your best piece of salvage. <sighs> the old woman stroked her chins. How do you even know it's male? Inquired Leatherbag with an incredulous sneer. You haven't seen it. Because females live in the deepest parts of the sea, where they nest the young. <sighs> Said the old woman again. This kid's not as dumb as he looks. He could be making all this up. He ain't. Thank you for your confidence, Woodrow put in. So what do you propose? I assume you have a diving helmet. Of course. Send me down there, and I'll talk to the Nanamiho. Convince him to pick a different shell. He picks whichever one he wants, leaves you alone, and you leave him alone. Deal? Back up, kid. You want to talk to the squid? Sure. I know a little Nanamiho sign. Gravel throat and leather bag were silent for almost 15 seconds. What's the worst that could happen? Came the girl's voice from behind. She had been listening, unnoticed. If the Seth eats him, you lose nothing. Gravelthroat just kept stroking her chins. After a moment, she said in the highest octave she could muster, Will you children please give us a moment of privacy so that we can discuss this? She smiled with her lips only. Fine, said the girl. Come on, I'll see to that cut. In the cabin, the girl produced a box. It held some rolls of white gauze, a needle and thread, a glass bottle labeled XXX, and a bar of wax. So, they took a tithe from you, she said, sitting down across from Woodrow at the table. She took his hand, palm up. They tried that with me, the girl went on, uncorking the bottle of alcohol. But I told them to go jump in a rip current. She poured the clear liquid over the gash and dabbed it with a cloth. Woodrow winced. Hurt? asked the girl. Nah, you, uh, you're on a drift? Yep. She unrolled the gauze and tore it with her teeth. A drift like the rite of passage for the Roko clan sea lords? The girl smiled. You've heard of it? she said, wrapping the bandage around Woodrow's hand. Read of it? Your family must be in the Privateer's Guild. That means you have a tattoo of passage, right? Can I see it? No. Woodrow shrugged. That's too bad. I could have given you passage on my ship. The girl put one end of the wax bar into the flame of the candle sitting on the table. Maybe I'm just waiting to see if that giant hermit Seth eats you. What's the scam you're running here? Woodrow looked at her uncomprehendingly. What do you mean? The girl took the wax out of the flame and ran it over the bandage. You're not actually going to talk to it. What are you really up to? I am going to talk to it. What I'm up to is trying to save an innocent creature from getting blown up in its shell. Also, I'm trying to find my cat. She looked at him for a long moment, as if she were weighing his words for falsehood or stupidity or both. Don't trust those people, she said at last. Who? Those old people? I don't. Good, because they're not going to let you go, even if you uphold your end of the bargain. Woodrow rubbed the back of his neck. I'll figure something out. They're bad. Trust me, 
I come from a family of privateers, so I know bad when I see it. What are you doing with them, then? She shrugged. The point of a drift is to learn virtue and villainy from the people who make their living off the sea, she said as if reciting from memory. Oh, you got the villainy part covered. The girl laughed. Woodrow liked the sound of it. Whatever you're up to, she said. You're ready to go. Once it sets, that wax will seal out the water and keep your bandage dry. Good luck. Thanks for listening to Lies and Half-Truths. This episode was written and performed by A.P. Weber and produced by Meg Weber. Our theme was provided by Josiah Martins. Original music by Mackenzie Stubbert. Consider liking, sharing, or reviewing this podcast wherever you listen to it. You can also support me, A.P. Weber, on Patreon. In any case, please join us again next time for more Lies and Half-Truths.